Today on Ack News Daily. That even the older generation is wise enough to know we we better be applying this stuff and learning how to make those actionable decisions or we're not going to be competitive. But it could well be that this is the place where they need to uh, link up. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy hashtag Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Joined today by Ashton Carr and sponsored today by Granular. And we're going to get to a little bit more about Granular Insights and some of their new tools they've got coming up later on in the podcast, Ashton. Isn't that right? Yes, we certainly are. And I'm very excited. I went ahead and listened to the panel that you were a part of with Granular. And I'm very excited to feature it and have our audience listen to it. Absolutely. As am I, Ashton. As am I. But before we get to it, we got to talk about some news for today. And I want to save this piece of news for a little bit later as we talk markets. But just a quick mention today was WASDE Report Day and things were very exciting. They uh, skyrocketed higher. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. Ashton, what other news are you watching today? Well, Delaney, it's a new year and a new initiative from the EPA. Administrator Andrew Wheeler has announced a $2 million initiative that encourages smart and sustainable pest control in the agriculture industry. The initiative is an extension of EPA's Pesticide Environmental Stewardship Program and expects to award recipients up to $200,000 to implement sustainable pest management practices that align with the agency's goal of providing a healthier environment for all Americans. Funding will go to projects that explore innovative practices, technologies, education, and non-regulatory solutions that promote the adoption of integrated pest management strategies. A request for applications will be issued later this month, and applicants will have 45 days to submit their applications. Funding will be available to states or state agencies, territories, city or township governments, and federally recognized tribes, public and private universities and colleges, and other public or private nonprofit institutions and 501c3 organizations. All right. Thanks for finding that piece of news for today, Ashton. I have just an interesting piece of news to say the least. I guess it's news news-ish, but I thought this was interesting. We saw, let's see, what organization was this? It's called Lawn Starter. I'm not really familiar with them, but they put together a full analysis and ranking of the best states and the worst states to start a farm and, and or ranch. And I thought just kind of a fun, interesting way to rank things. Not really sure exactly how they ranked things or how folks decided which states were the best versus the worst. But top five states to start a ranch or a farm were Kentucky, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Texas, and Montana. And the five worst states to start a farm or ranch were Hawaii, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maine, and Alaska. I thought that was just a little interesting piece of news, Ashton. It certainly ends interesting, and I'm glad that Texas made it into the top five. Mm -hmm. They certainly (laughs) did. Iowa was not. They were somewhere in the middle, I believe. 
Yeah, they were eighth, actually. So not that far behind Texas. So I'll take it. Um, I guess. OK, I lied. I do know kind of what they ranked it on. They looked at things like infrastructure, prevalence of farms, climate and environment, the cost and also the return on investment. And that's what they found. And you can find their results on a link that we will share in our weekly newsletter. Delaney, I'm glad you mentioned the weekly newsletter because I have an article here that I'm also going to put in there, but I wanted to report on today as well because I certainly thought that these research findings were interesting. The agriculture industry gets a lot of flack. It is often pointed at when we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, but a team from Virginia Tech have something different to say. The dairy industry contributes approximately 1.58% of the United States total greenhouse gas emissions. And that's a bit of a small number, yet many activists and environmentalists suggest minimizing the dairy industry. So the research conducted by those researchers at Virginia Tech concluded that the removal of dairy cows from the U.S. would only reduce greenhouse emissions by 0.7%. The research product examined different scenarios for the U.S. dairy industry that factored in current management practices, retirement, and depopulation. And they looked at both the environmental and nutritional impact of the different scenarios. So, you know, from their research, they concluded that that 0.7% of greenhouse emissions would be reduced, but really that's nothing in comparison to the removal of the nutritional value of dairy products. And it's very interesting. And there's a lot more that goes that or that went in to this research project. And I definitely want to feature it in our newsletter as well that will be going out on Friday. Ashton, does it say who put forth this research project? Yes, it does. Let me pull up the name right here. Robin White, who is an associate professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Sciences. They were a member of that research team. And I'm looking right now and I don't see any other names, but it is certainly interesting. And it's a fairly lengthy article, which is why I'm not really reading the whole thing. So folks, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the program and the research they conducted, you can find out on Friday. All right. Well, Speaking of Friday, this happened last Friday, but the Chinese government, actually, this is happening this Friday, I lied. The Chinese government will sell an additional 30,000 tons of imported pork from the nation's reserves on Friday to help cool domestic prices that are rising once again here before we head into the Chinese Lunar New Year, which I begin starts the beginning of February when, uh, you know, that time of year, the Chinese enjoy eating a lot of pork. It's a big part of their culture and tradition, and the government is working very hard. It sounds like they've pulled already quite a bit of pork out of storage supplies and are needing to disperse it to their citizens to have some of that ahead of their celebration. The one, I won't call it a caveat, but the one thing to keep in mind here is While they are rebuilding their hog herd, they're still dealing with some supply and demand issues as far as pork is concerned, especially considering that this event is such an important time of year. They consume a lot of pork during this time of year. You know, I don't know the specific statistic. I wish I did or the percentage of, you know, they eat X number of pounds per year. I wish I knew how much of that is consumed during this Lunar New Year celebration because I would be 
willing to wager that it's a very large portion of their total pork consumption gets consumed over the next few weeks once this event kicks off. So definitely something that could move the markets moving forward and something we'll have to keep a closer eye on here moving forward, Ashton. We certainly will, Delaney, but I am all out of news for today. I know that we had the WASDE to talk about, and we have a pretty lengthy interview, so I'm going to hand it over to you and whatever news you have left for the day. Perfect. Okay, so everybody bear with me here. I'm not going to go through the specific numbers. I always hate reading them, and I, I don't know that it really means a lot to people when I sit there and read through the numbers. So instead, instead I'm just going to tell you a synopsis of what happened during today's WASDE report, more specifically what happened in the grain markets, because following the report, which was very friendly, we saw corn skyrocket as much as, you know, 15, 20 cents. And then we saw corn lock limit up around 1130 this morning. And that lock limit up is a 25 cents trading range. So tomorrow we'll be using expanded limits. So that could get kind of interesting. We also saw soybeans skyrocket higher. They did not go limit up, but they did skim past or blow past really $14. We saw as much as 45 cents at one point being traded higher. And wheat also had impressive moves to the upside today as we saw um, quite a few factors building into that. So the few factors I wanted to mention, or I think that are worth mentioning, is the report lowered corn production outlooks. It dropped estimates pretty significantly. It um, actually dropped ethanol usage or corn usage for ethanol. No surprise there. And it also lowered corn exports, just 100 million bushels. So not a huge drop there. But really what happened was we saw ending stocks lowered by 150 million bushels. So pretty substantial drop. And here's the big one. We saw corn exports to China jump from the previously estimated 13 million tons last month to 17 and a half million tons in today's report. So we've still got a big number floating around of 22 million tons that China may or may not commit to buying, but we're much closer to that number as of today's report. On the soybean side of things, we saw soybean production estimates decreased about 35 million bushels from December, led, it, led by reductions in yield as well as production in Minnesota, Iowa, and Kansas. We also saw national yield estimates drop a half a bushel per acre to 50.2. And we saw beginning stocks rise just slightly, but that was offset enough by the lower supplies and increased use, increased soy capacity and soy crush. And lower forecast exports for Argentina on the soybean side of things, soybean meal specifically. Again, no surprise there as we've seen tr trucker strikes, we've seen farmer strikes, we've see been seeing a lot of issues going on in Argentina revolving around their soybean meal and export industry. And lastly, in the wheat complex, as I mentioned, rallied anywhere from 20 to 22 to 32 cents after the release of the report. And um, projections of the crop were stable, um, and unchanged domestically, but we did see increased exports globally, as well as pretty neutral supplies globally as well. And one other quick factor weighing into today's report, not really today's report, but more so today's markets, Russia will reevaluate that wheat export tax that takes effect next month, possibly leading to further constrained global wheat supplies if the tariff is actually raised, is what they are looking at 
doing at this time. So really exciting day today. If you are a row crop farmer, Ashton, not so exciting if you're a livestock farmer that has animals that need to get fed. It certainly sounds like it, Delaney, but I'm ready to hop into the markets if you are. All right, let's do that. And as I mentioned, green well across the screen today in the grain complex. Corn locked limit up today, closing 25 cents higher to end at 5.17 and a quarter. We saw the limit being traded in March, July, excuse me, March, May and July. Those three contract months all went lock limit up. However, further out in December, not quite as big a gains today, but still nothing to complain about as the December new crop contract added 16 and three quarters cents to close at five, excuse me, four fifty seven and a half in the soybean pits. March today up 45 and three quarters cents to close at 1418. The November up 21 and a half to close at 1176 and a half. Chicago wheat today, March adding 30 and a quarter cents to close at 665. The Deese up 20 and a quarter to close at 658 and three quarters. Like I said, explosive moves higher today. And not explosive moves lower, but definitely trending lower today on reactions, like I mentioned there, that it's going to get a little more expensive to feed out livestock. Kicking things off here in the February live cattle contract down 92.5 cents to close at 112.47. The April down 70 to close at 117.65. In feeder cattle, the January contract down 277 to close at 133.22 and a half. The March down 292 to close at 133.97 and a half. And in lean hogs, February up just two cents today to close at 68.50. The April up 57 and a half cents to close at 73.52 and a half. And rounding out the Markets today with our class three dairy milk futures, February down three quarters today to close at 1868. The March down 75 as well to close at 1830. Without further ado, let's kick it over to part one of the panel I got to host with Granular. Welcome to this edition of Farming Profitable in 2020, What We Learned. The goal of today's session is to talk a little bit more about Harvest 2020 now that it's in the rearview mirror and how to look at that agronomic data. I'm Delaney Howell, and I am an ag journalist by training, currently working as Chief Marketing Officer for Trader PhD LLC, but I'm joined by two fantastic panelists today. We'll start off here first welcoming Dan Modernock, who is an industry-leading ag economist and author. And Dan, you've got some great insights today to share a couple key tips, I believe, if you will, about how to be profitable with ag data. We've also been joined today by Steve Hedinger, who is owner and operator of Hedinger Farms in Illinois and has been farming for over 35 years. He's also a certified crop advisor for the American Society of Agriculture with extensive background in producing corn and soybeans, so definitely an expert in the field. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. So that really the goal of today is to talk about data. And that can be kind of a steep order to fill because a lot of folks use data, a lot of folks don't use data, but I think there's still some transitioning about how do you become profitable looking at that data? And Dan, I'll start with you. If you had to just offer a baseline recommendation for folks now that they're kind of looking at 2020 in the rearview mirror, how should they go about looking at that data to drive decisions for 2021 production? 
Well, to begin with, the first thing to start looking at yield variations on a field-by-field basis at the least. And if you've got precision ag data, such as yield maps, even variations in yield within the field. I'm talking about variations from field to field in the crop history. What was last year's crop? Uh, Were there any differences in tillage practices? Were there any differences in hybrids used from field to field? And then, of course, planting is always interrupted by rainy weather. Was there any significant differences in planting date? Uh, the hybrids that you use from field to field. Uh, and then you, it, the list goes on and on. You've got differences in soil types from field to field, differences in slope, differences in drainage pattern. Uh, the next thing would be to look at test plot data uh, from test plots in your area, hybrid performance. Uh, most of the test plots, you know, probably within 10 or 20 miles of you, probably had a pretty similar growing season. Uh, there could be even a lot of similarity in soil types. So looking at test plot data and comparing the performance of test plot hybrids versus the hybrids you used on your farm can be very insightful. Um, it'd be also very good to look at the outlook for 2021 in terms of prices as we're looking uh, backwards. This is how our yields were, but we have to think about things even like crop mix. Uh, for example, you look at the futures market, and, and I'm sure Steve can verify this. The futures right now is kind of giving an edge to soybeans for 2021. The problem is that people in my business and everybody like me are making the same observations. So that if you have a tendency to want to lean towards a few more beans next year, it might be wise to look at some put options to lock in the premium, you know, that soybean corn price ratio, because what if everybody does plant more beans Dan, I've got to ask a question here because I think you make a fantastic point right there because I I know a lot of farmers that think next year I'm going to plant more soybeans. Prices are favorable right now, but that doesn't necessarily add up when they look at their agronomic data. How do you advise folks to look at the agronomic data to actually drive decisions and not let a healthy market price influence their decision? That, that's an excellent question because, you know, economists like myself, we like to talk in terms of the soybean corn price ratio. Well, it's more it, that can also have a lot of variance. What is your yield ratio between the yield potential for corn on your land and the yield potential for soybeans on your land? It could be a, a difference where just because the current price ratio gives a slight edge to soybeans because of the nature of the yield experience that you've had, or, or whether you're talking about double crop beans following wheat, there's all kinds of variations that also matter into the equation more than just the soybean corn price ratio in the futures market. All right, Steve, let's dive down now at a producer level and let's take a step back here and answer a similar question to what Dan tackled to start off. But you are a pretty tech savvy guy from what I hear. You use a bunch of different tools, including the new granular insights tool to help drive your decisions at an agronomic level. Tell us a little bit more about how you go through your data each year and let that drive your decision for the next year's production. Sure. Well, this is the time of year where we are really going through what happened in 2020. It was a good year, um, but the tools I use, uh, I used to use a lot of spreadsheets, uh, but uh, a wrong formula here and a wrong formula there can have a problem. So uh, once I adopted the granular system, it's made it a lot more intuitive, more easy to pull out the data I need. So what I saw this year, you know, uh, every farm has its own personality. 
it seems like, uh, you know what the field's going to do, but until you see the numbers, like in Granular's Profit Analyzer, where I can compare each field individually, uh, it makes it very obvious there's more variability to my decisions. More, There's more of an outcome difference than I realize on making a decision, whether it's fungicide or no fungicide, uh, hybrid differences. Uh, could be land agreement negotiations. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, cash rents, for example. Uh, just small things add up quickly, and until those numbers are right in front of you in my granular sheet, uh, it brings it to life. So, um, like I said, I use a lot of apps, and there's a lot of platforms out there to be on, and that's the biggest decision in itself, which one fits you. And right now, I found the granulars fit mine really well. So, I'm, I'm getting good data. And I'll open this question up to both of you, but a question I ask a lot of producers and get asked a lot is, why do we need to know break-even price? Is it really going to drive our data that much? And how important is that when you factor that in on your operation, Dan? Or uh, excuse me, on your operation, Steve? So that, that is the ultimate goal of a program like Granular that gives you insight to that cost of production, not only just once a year, but as the season goes through. So that's what's so nice, being a cloud-based system. I can pull it off my phone when I'm in the field. I have access to it at all times. So hopefully I can beat the Chicago Board of Trade to that market fall when I rate. So I know what I need. I know what I need to break even. I know what I need to make money and make returns to myself. So very critical that, you know, you cost production and that, that does that for me. And Dan, uh, from an economic perspective. Okay, sure. Uh, the way I would answer that question on the importance of, of break even is to recognize that even break even is a moving target, uh, depending on the kind of growing season that you have. And you need to uh, constantly adjust your yield expectations based on what type of growing seasons you go, because you might, your first sale uh, might have been 15% of what you thought you were going to grow. Uh, then, depending on how the growing season goes, uh, you might find, well, now my break-even price has changed because my, my yield potential has gone down or my yield potential has gone up. And you might find that that first sale that you thought was 15% of your targeted, you know, your uh, cash flow projections, now you find out, well, now that, that first sale might actually turn out to be 20 or 25% of what I'm actually going to grow. Or conversely, if you're having an excellent year, you might find out that that first 15% if the way this, the season is going, I probably really only have 9 or 10% of my crop sold, and that can affect your next marketing move, How many, what percentage of your targeted yield you price in your next sale. Going off of that a little bit more, Dan, not only is it important to know your break-even, but it's important to know your cost of production field by field, and Steve, I'm sure you'll agree on that. Tell us a little bit more about why that's so important for driving profitability. Who wants to go first? Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, in this age of precision farming, uh, just treating all your fields alike uh, is, is, is a big, big mistake. It's a, it's a bit of an overstatement. But to just say, I have a magic formula that I use. You know, I use these hybrids. I go for this planting population. And I, I shoot for this yield target with this amount of fertilizer across my whole operation. Unless you have exactly the same soil types and the same slope and the same previous cropping history, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's a little bit like a, 
uh, a small town doctor deciding that everybody who comes through the door gets the same diagnosis and the same prescriptions and the same treatment, uh, regardless of what they actually came in for. Again, that's a bit of an overstatement, but that's how unwise it is to treat all your, your, your arm and even all your fields exactly alike, according to some magic formula. And the other thing that I've observed in my career is a big mistake that's made is ignoring the laws of diminishing returns when you have soils of different productivity, frankly. Uh, what I see too many producers often doing is they take their very best ground and what would be the optimum application rates for nitrogen, for example, on their very best ground, and then they apply that so they don't, they don't adjust the speed or the applicator, and they, they fertilize all their ground for what was ideal for their best ground. And what they end up doing then is uh, they only get back a certain percentage of that nitrogen. <clears throat> At some point, it becomes like you've got a tractor of a given horsepower and thinking, well, if I just put a bigger fuel tank on the tractor, it'll have more power. It doesn't work that way. Steve, any insight to add to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very important to know your cost of production per field. So since I have granular now, I can think about my farms in a different way. Uh, it's always nice, you know, farming is a very romantic occupation. You think about childhood memories and that's the family side and that, that should never go away. But on the business side, since I have granular, that product has allowed me to think of each piece of a ground like a, like a factory. And so we are in the, we are in the business of manufacturing grain. And so I can, I can get the mindset of a factory. And if that factory does not produce, first of all, what do I have to do differently to get it to produce? And secondly, if it never produces enough for a return, then I got to consider giving that piece of ground up and moving on. That's hard for a farmer to do. So these data tools are allowing us to look at the numbers and numbers don't lie. It gets rid of all the favorite memories you had on that farm, that favorite personality, that favorite memory you had on that farm, and it gets down to, is this returning money to me? And so knowing those numbers at the tips, at the touch of my fingers, wherever I'm at, is pretty important. So obviously numbers drive our business or should drive our business to be profitable. Dan, as an economist, I'm sure that you've got some hard research and evidence to back that up. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that with us? Not at all. I'd be happy to. One of the most uh, frequent requests I get in terms of speaking engagements is a program that I do on performance benchmarking. Um, and performance benchmarking is just having a set of standards. So if somebody would ask you as a producer, well, how competitive are you? The, the only logical answer for a producer is how competitive am I in what compared to what compared to who? And you need some good benchmark figures. And there, that benchmarking is becoming all the rage and has been for a decade now, even at land-grant colleges who offer, pro, they'll put out average, you know, crop budgets. Here's what the average cost of production is, line item by line item by line item by line item. Uh, but these fall a little bit short if they're only talking about averages. Because if all you're trying to be is above average, uh, that's not a very high goal to set. Uh, there's other people that want to be in the top 10% or the top 20% and they're going to eat your lunch. If all you, th you think you're doing fine if I'm above average. Uh, land grant colleges have performance benchmarking programs that are excellent. Um, 
And some of these are based on actual farm business records. And some of them will even uh, break it out into here's how the top third performed. Here's the median group. And here's how the lower third performed. Um, but you know what? The best one that I've ever encountered is a program called FinBin. Uh, it operates out of the University of Minnesota. Uh, the URL is finbin.umn for minnesota.edu. But it's not just for Minnesota farmers. The, their, their system, their benchmarking system is so robust and can be tailored to your exact situation in so many different parameters that 11 other states, colleges in 11 other states are now cooperating with the FinBin program. And if you go to FinBin and you use that for your performance benchmarks, you can do all kinds of sorts to make sure you're doing apples to apples comparisons. You can pick out just your state and the surrounding states. Say, I don't wanna be compared to the whole Corn Belt. I just wanna be compared to my region. You can pick those out. Steve, I wanna turn the conversation to you here for a moment. When talking about benchmarking or things that you're constantly tracking, are there things that you're watching that help you be more profitable or maybe things that you've noticed over the years that you hadn't tracked previously and now you are that have really helped your bottom line? Well, on the financial side, I'm using a program on the accounting side, farm, farmers business, uh, FBFM, which I get benchmarked against on my financials as far as my seed costs and my, my re- returns actually. Um, so our farm is actually low on seed costs and we're high on repairs because we repair a lot of our equipment. So yeah, it's very valuable to benchmark. It's, it's kind of like that human nature. We're always curious of how we're competing against our peers. And it is easy to fall into the trap of always going for the highest yield. That's what farmers want. That's what, that's what makes us up. You know, we want to produce, produce, produce. But I agree that, uh, for instance, nitrogen, I call it the psychotic input because unless you can predict the weather two weeks before and two weeks, well, two weeks after your application, you're not sure if you got the right rate on because if you have too much rain, it's going to flush it out, right? Or it may not rain at all and you might as well not put it on. So nitrogen is one of those inputs that you until we have more data from the weather guys that we can predict better what's going to happen two weeks after you're you're throwing darts at times so what you can do like dan says you you don't shoot for the yield you you keep track of your data from years past you see what worked on that farm what that soil type is use variable rate nitrogen if you can we have the technology to do that you should um so what i've learned is that prescription farming should be just that we should be varying what we're doing according to what it needs and that's tough to do sometimes. You got to have data. Tell me a little bit more about prescription farming that you use on your operation. Uh, variable rate seeding per row. So we have electric drives on our planter. We can we can change population within three seeds. I mean, I can, in three seeds, it's change the population across different zones. Uh, we're not variable rating our nitrogen, but we are spoon feeding our nitrogen by a little bit early and a lot late if we can. Um, yield maps. Uh, everything we do is with GPS guided equipment, swath control in our booms, variable rate uh, fertilizer in the fall. So the consumer of today is going to demand that. We can't be messing around anymore by just dumping fertilizer on. We've got to start managing or someone's going to manage it for us. And I think with a program like Granular, what's really nice about that is I'm digitizing every pass. Basically, I've got the information to go back on. So if someone asked me what happened to that field of corn where that corn came from, trace it back to your field. I have I have the records to do it. So and it's backed up all the time. 
All right. I pulled this fun statistic um, actually from a, a recent study that Purdue University did. And they surveyed about 15,000 farmers and they found that 80% of farmers pull farming data, whether it's at planting or at harvest season, but only 20% of them actually turn that data into actionable insights. Dan, I'll start with you on this one, but how would you answer that? How, how do we get producers over that hump of collecting data, but then knowing in turn what to do with that data? Well, I, I applaud the fact that so many farmers are, are using the data, but uh, you're absolutely right. A lot of them who are using it are, are suffering from information overload. They're generating all this data and they aren't really sure what to do with it when they get it. So that's the second stage of the educational process. The first, it's only the first step to, to buy it install it and learn how to use it. But then what do you do with the data? And this is one of those things where um, third-party firms, we talk about hiring consultants. Uh, in a lot of cases, you might have some, you know, some 30-something and 40-somethings out there who are who grew up in the digital age, and they're not intimidated at all by learning how to analyze all this data and develop actionable uh, information from it. But let's face it. Uh, I'm sure Steve is the exception, but uh, farmers are getting older. Uh, the average age of farmers is now like 58. Uh, and a lot of them, they've already been through a couple of technological revolutions. And it's I'm not saying that that they're not smart enough to figure this out. They just don't want to. That's one of the reasons that I think we're going to see an increase in generational turnover in the, in the coming years, because they, the, even the older generation is wise enough to know we we better be applying this stuff and learning how to make those actionable decisions or we're not going to be competitive. But it could well be that this is the place where they need to uh, link up with third party consulting firms. Said, so give us your data and we'll tell you what your data is telling you about next year's management. Yeah. Steve. You're a tech savvy guy, as we've already mentioned. So like Dan was mentioning, you're probably not part of this 80% that doesn't use their data. But when you're talking to other farmers, as I'm sure you do, how do you talk to them about their data if they're hesitant to begin using it or hiring a third party to read through it for them? So we run a precision planning business. So we have about 90 customers every spring that fire up their monitors with iPads. And so I'm fortunate enough to have a 28-year-old son named Casey, then I can throw the iPad to. He's an Apple freak, right? I mean, he just I think when he grew up, he put the Apple emblem on his bedroom door. That's how geeky he is. <laughs> but, you know, he said he wanted to be in an occupation where there was technology. So where you found it because it's in farming. And like Dan said, we don't have an easy button. And that's what people want. There's not going to, we'll know when we've come full circle, we've made our success on data because we won't say the word data anymore. It'll just be, it'll just be part of it. And so I'm fortunate enough to have my son but I see it day in, day out. Farmers do want the easy button. It's it's not easy to use your data. You have to make an effort. And the problem or mm, at the beginning of this data surge, there's so many platforms you can choose. And so choosing a platform can be a little bit hard. And so once you choose a platform, sometimes you almost have to stick with it. And then you'll find out if it's not good enough, you have to switch. So we're at the front end of this data thing, I believe. And so Dan's right. This is going to turn the generation quicker. You know, my son, I hand him an iPad. And he just, Dad, what are you talking about? Just hit this, you know, and I'm sitting there going, what? 
So uh, it's coming. It's coming like a train. And uh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to get on it. So the young guys are going to take it. I'd like to respond to what uh, Steve just said. First of all, I want to compliment you for being in the FBFN program. That is a very, very good program. In fact, it's so good that Illinois isn't one of the states in the FinBin program. <laughs> because uh, I, I'm very familiar with that. And what I like about FBFM is they even divide the state of Illinois into the, they have a separate batch of numbers for Northern Illinois, Central Illinois, and Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. Because it's a long state from top to bottom, lots of variation in soil types, variation in, in rainfall patterns. So um, kudos on that. Yeah. My question for you, Steve, is, has to do with something you alluded to. In the early stages of precision ag technology, technology, a big complaint among farmers is different manufacturers wanted to have a monopoly on it. They wanted to create software that could only be utilized if all your equipment was green or all your equipment was red. And what I'm reading now is that there's more and more standardization so that one platform will be able to speak to another platform. Is that true? What's your experience? Yeah, yeah that's true. So for instance, Granular is really good about uh, forming APIs, which I believe stands for Authenticated Protocol Interface. And so basically being able to turn on a switch and move data. And so, yeah, they work really good with John Deere operations. They're going to be working good with FieldView. So, it's become less of a problem because guys, are, it's like hydraulics on a tractor. You know, mm-hmm. the hydraulic ends never match if you go different colors. What's the way we need to get data to one hydraulic fitting, right? If we can't, I know there's always going to be competition. It's not going to happen. So it's gotten better. The biggest struggle I have with customers of data is privacy, uh, mm-hmm. concerned about where their data is going, who owns it. I try to reassure them that, okay, I understand that concern, but if you use your credit card at Walmart, or any other place, they're going to know where to put the cereal for you because they know your buying patterns, what you're buying. So data is everywhere. We might as well get used to it. Be as careful as you can, but it shouldn't be an obstacle to making your farm profitable. Right. That's just my opinion. There are days I get frustrated myself. I'm 58 years old. And that's when I say, son, Casey, here, fix it, make it right. So I have an advantage and not everybody has that. And I don't take it for granted. Trust me. I have to pay more now. <laughs> And that's fantastic. That's yeah, and I think that's really nice that you have somebody that you're obviously going to pass the farm down to. I'm guessing who's yeah. involved in the operation and has that generational knowledge that you're sharing with him. It's changing. Absolutely, yeah. it is changing, and that's part of the goal of today's discussion. Is just how do we wrap our heads around that, and what can we do to better prepare ourselves? Yep. Well, that is part one of the granular discussion. We will continue that on next Tuesday's Tech Tuesday episode where we dive into granular insights and how to use your data a little bit better, more in depth next week. We're just giving the people something to look forward to for next week, Delaney. But folks, be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com and follow us on social media while you're at it to keep up with everything that we're doing on the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.